The rest of us can grab our Bibles, and uh, if you go ahead and open that to Genesis chapter 1, uh, I'd appreciate that. We've kind of already looked at Psalm 139, we'll be there in a minute again. But Genesis chapter, chapter 1. Good to see everybody today, and glad you made it out. We, uh, we've been kind of going through a, a, a difficult sermon series, and uh, I think I've had a lot of great conversations. Hopefully, there's been a lot of great conversations uh, for you and your household and uh, with others as well within our church. Uh, the series is called Designed Then Deceived, uh, and it's, it's a timely series, probably maybe a late, late to the game series, but timely because our culture is continuing to move farther and farther away from God and away from biblical truth. And, and so the, the fear, the, the hard part is this, that if, if culture is moving farther away from God and, and, and they're moving farther away from biblical truth and we're a part of the world, right? We, we live here, we go to school here, we work here, we pay taxes here. Uh, the, the hard part is that we too can begin to consider moving further away from God and further away from biblical truth. And, and I think some of you, and maybe even me at times, like we think, oh, no, I'm not far away from God, but you know, the Bible, uh, you gotta, how do you interpret that and these things? I don't know what's to believe. And it's hard because we really are inundated with culture around us that, that shows a certain way or presents a certain way or, or, or makes us feel our feelings and, and maybe it's okay or maybe I don't know. And, and it's really, really difficult in that time. And God says, go back to the word. Trust me, go back to the Word. And so as we've gone through uh, the series, Designed, Then Deceived, we've, we've looked at God's design regarding some kind of hot topic issues to start us off, right? We began with God's biblical design of gender. We saw that God created us, male and female. That we are equal, but we are different. We, last week we talked about the biblical view and God's design regarding sexuality. I uh, someone joked with me after the service, like that Monday, like I think you said sex like twenty-seven times. Maybe, maybe Christians should be saying that more since God made sex. What we learned about biblical sexuality is that it's meant to be between one man and one woman within covenant marriage for oneness and joy and procreation until God separates that. And it's a beautiful, glorious thing. And that oneness was something we talked about in greater detail, but it also was pulled from God's oneness with his people as well, as a model. And today, we're going to be looking at God's design in the biblical view of human value. Of human value. I mentioned to you as I started this series that I was not going to come up here and use all kinds of political crazy words. This is not a political speech. This is a pastor, the heart of a pastor, looking at the heart of God's word and giving you God's word. So I am going to avoid every chance I get to try to tie this in some kind of political agenda because that is not what this is. However, our faith and the word of God should inform a Christian's political view. Amen? I mean, political view should not inform our biblical view, Right? We start with the Bible. We start with God. And that was something we talked about in Genesis 1. 1 was, in the beginning, what? God, right? Who? God. It's, it's Him. We start with Him. And we'll see that again today. And, and one of the things I, I talked about is, as, we, as we approach these issues, 
was to not consider making Jesus just a reference point in your life story. Like I was this, and I was a kid, and I went to VBS, and then Jesus happened, and it was great. And then after that, it was kind of kind of fell off a little bit, and I'm doing my own thing. But oh yeah, Jesus is still that reference point back there. Jesus does not want to be a reference point for you or for me. He wants to be our everything. And he is capable to be that. In fact, one of the things I didn't talk about last week, we talked about human sexuality, and, and maybe we started to, to touch on this, was that, that these are a male and female come together for sexual unity within a marriage, right? And, and those, are, those two people uh, are complementing pairs, right? And, and what I want to make sure we avoid when we talk about human sexuality is that I get the fact that some of you are single or widowed or wanting and desiring, but you can't find or can't have. And, and you're like, what do I do? And you try to take matters into your own hands, and that's what leads to destruction in your relationships. What I want us to understand is this, that if you were to remain single for the rest of your life until Jesus came back, would you be complete or could you be complete? The answer is absolutely yes. So the, the, there's a fallacy that we use in human relationships that, that I, I, I find a spouse and I'm so lovey-dovey. And, and I remember, I remember Mathia and I were in premarital counseling with Pastor Stan, right? And I was like, oh, Jerry Maguire. And he's like, why do you want to marry Mathia? And she's like, oh, I'm like, because she completes me. And he looks at me like, that's the wrong answer, dude. <laughs> right? Because we are two fallible, self-centered sinners. And if I put all my, all my eggs in that basket, she is not going to complete, complete me. And that is not fair to my spouse. God is the person who completes us. My wife compliments me, Right? And sometimes compliments me when I do something good. But we're complimenting pairs. But with or without her, or with or without me, we can be complete in Christ Jesus. Because the answer to the question, is Jesus enough, is always what? Yes. Absolutely. All right. So let's look at human value today. The biblical view of human value. So again, we start out, number one, with God's design. If you're with me there in Genesis 1, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right to work, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we commit this time to you. We ask that you would uh, be pleased. God, as we, as we look to your word, and God, that we would be convicted, and we would be yielded in our heart to you. And God, we, we want our hearts to be open, to hear from you, to be taught by you. And God, to, to consider you as way more than any reference point on our timeline but that you are everything, and, and what you see and what you say matters. So we turn to you now for guidance. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26, I know we've read some of this before in our uh, other buildup, but we're working towards something here. So here, here's, we just look at the, the innate value of humankind. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. In verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created them, him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Amen? It's amazing, you know, and, and he gave this unique creation, human beings rule over all other things that God created. If you look at the creation account and how man was created, God took the dust of the earth, what he had made, right? And, and he, he formed it into a man. And then what did he do with that? What did he do with that clay model? 
he breathed his own spirit into him, and the man had life. He did not do that in the nostrils of a cow or a giraffe or a parrot, certainly not a cat. I mean, maybe, I know. Nothing that God created. Everything that God created was to be subdued and ruled by man. In fact, if we went into this a little deeper, that humanity, humankind, you and I are this perfect convergence between what was created and the divine. That we are what is created, but we have within us the divine. Not, not some weird spiritual guru way that we talked about during Sunday school, right? Not that I'm God, but that God lives in and we are created in God's image. That's humans. And because of that, we have value. I want to I just talk about a couple quick ways that, that we are imagers of God. Uh, first, w- relationally, we image God. God is in relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right, They're in perfect harmony, perfect relationship as the Trinity, God. And they show that relationship. We see that relationship built on and, and expressed throughout all of Scripture. And we, too, are then relational, not only with each other, but with God as well, that we have the capacity for relationship. And, and it's way different. It's way different than relationship with animals. You're like, well, Brandon, animals are the same way. No, they're not. Right? An animal, a, a mother has a young, yes, there's a connection and attachment, and that young dies because a wolf attacks it. Right? it yes, the mother mourns. And there are times we, we've seen stories of animals that mourn that death, but they have to go on because instinctively they've been created to survive. Where if you or I lose a child, we may be in grief for the rest of our lives because we are relational, created in God's image. There's a difference in that. How about with morality? That's another area. Morality or or a sense of justice. We we, we sense what is right and what is wrong. We sense that there's something that's offensive and something that's okay and and acceptable. That's something that we we also share with God. We also define uh, a structure with that. And that's that's the next thing. We're, We're rational people. So we're relational. We have a moral sense of justice. Now, we're also rational. We, we reason things out. We desire to see how things work and to, to build and to create and to make progress scientifically. We, we bring reason and order. We bring laws about that govern society. That's how we are imagers of God. We created in the image of God. We are also creative. God is creative, isn't he? Look around us. If you go outside and you can't think that God is creative, especially where we live, oh my word, you're missing something. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? And so you and I have this ability to be creative as well and think. I mean, I, I love how my, my daughter thinks and my son thinks. They, they have these stories as little, young, innocent ch- children. They have these stories and these fantasies and these what-ifs. The, yesterday, Bailey is at the counter, and she starts like reciting this skit. I'm like, where, where did she hear this? What, what is this? And it didn't make a ton of sense, but it made a ton of sense to her. But she was acting out parts and pieces, and she was laughing and had inflections, and it was great to listen to. She was creative. She's imaging God, the creator. And so when my kid draws something and the draft looks like a box, I'm going to say, hey, you're creative. So create. Whether it's music or art or dance, whatever it might be, that, that we are creative and we use those things for the glory of God. We are also spiritual and eternal. We are spiritual and eternal. We, we have a soul. We we have a very deep sense of eternality. People sometimes think, oh, no, that no, we don't. We just want to go to the dust. They don't really believe that. Their heart of hearts are like, I am scared to death because I'm probably wrong. We, we were created to be eternal. Adam and Eve were immortal and eternal in the Garden of Eden. And then sin entered the world and death entered the world. 
And not only did their, their, bod, their bodies, their immortal bodies become mortal and they began to die, that their physical bodies would die, but their soul was also separated from God because he's holy and pure and wouldn't be around to sin and stand sin. But we are eternal. And that's in view. And you, if you don't think so, every time there's a funeral, and I've done dozens, hundreds of them, every time there's a funeral, you could have the, the most ardent atheist there contemplating their eternal life. What is this? And a great time for conversations because people are eternal. I also say I didn't write this down, but, but people want, in that relationship, people want to love, want to be loved. Right? And God, when he created us, he created us to be objects of his love and that he would be the object of our greatest affection. We are made to be like him in these ways and to represent him. And in that, human beings have profound value, profound value. The problem is human beings don't live like that. Turn to Psalm 139. We're going to read part of this and just again see that, that value and how God views you and how he sees you. We're going to read one through six here together about dead center in the middle of the Bible. Veronica read this earlier. The Lord, you, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of my ways, all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me and you have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is too lofty. lofty. I am unable to reach it. What, what does the psalmist say? He says, this wonderful knowledge. What knowledge? What is too lofty? What is he unable to reach? That God would care that much for him. God cares for his creation, but God cares for human beings who were created in his image. I remember years ago, there was a song talking about the, the fact that when I consider all the heavens and I look at the stars, and I think about how small I am in comparison. How is it that God cares about me? Because all the other stuff is just God's creative design pointing to God. We are God's image bearers. The only thing in the universe that bears God's image is humanity. He cares. Then the Lord is intimately familiar with you. The Lord is intimately familiar with you. You know what else he knows, though? That we aren't perfect. You think, I think we come to this idea that if we are to have value with God, we, we have to get our act together. Now, God wants us to get our act together, right? He wants us to be holy as He is holy, but He knows that we can't do it on our own. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, but do you know how much God values you? That while you were still sinners, Jesus died for you. You know how much value human beings have? That the Lord Jesus would come, God in the flesh, he'd put on human flesh so that he could offer that human flesh on a cross and give it up and bleed and die and suffer and die. Because that's how much God loves you and values you. He knows that the wages of our sin is death. So he pursues us with the free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who on earth is better than someone else? Only God. Only God. But again, we tend to live like we're better than other people, don't we? 
I want to continue to look through God's design on, on some of the, the areas of, and groups of people that God values. In Acts 10, Peter begins to speak. He says, now truly I understand that God doesn't show favoritism. Why? Because God loves us and he created us in his image, each one of us. He doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is God's love limited to a certain nation? What? No. Is God's love limited to a certain race? Not at all. Salvation is open to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, any race. Paul says in Galatians, he says that, that through faith, you all, any who would come, all are sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. And he says this, now there's no distinction, it doesn't matter. He says there's no, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female. It doesn't matter the distinction, they can all be one in Christ. Because he offers forgiveness to them. He finds value in them. So what humans have value so far? Every race, every color, every creed, every nation, and males and females equally have value. We go on, and Jesus in his ministry, he, he, he opens a scroll of the prophet Isaiah in Luke 4, and, and he unruly finds a place where it's written, and he reads this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God wanted to show and say, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm here for everyone, not just the spiritual elite or the ones that can pay their way. I'm here for the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And he rolled up his scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down like this mic drop, right? And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying this to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus says, this is what I've come for. I've come for the poor. I've come for the captives, the blind, the oppressed, every nation, males or females. This is why I'm here. In his ministry, Jesus was sitting down and uh, the little children were brought. Matthew 19, little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked him. And Jesus said, leave the little children alone. Why would they? God, don't, don't mess with the children. This is big kid stuff, man. This is, this is adult stuff. This is why your kids right now are not in daycare. Your kids are, are in there listening to the word of God being taught at their level so they too can come to know Jesus. He says, leave the little children alone. Do not try and keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So who has value? We have every race, every tribe, every, every tongue, every nation. Males and females, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. Little children have value. How about old people? Sometimes we don't treat them like that. I mean, every one of these categories doesn't get treated with value. Proverbs says, gray hair is a glorious crown. It is found in the ways of the righteous. Amen to that. I needed that this week. I needed that this week. What's the next, next one that has value? Old people. Young people. Old people. Rich people, poor people, captives, blind, oppressed, every race, every tribe, every tongue, and males and females. You're with me still in Psalm 139? Jump down to verse 13. The psalmist continues to say, who has value? He says, for it was you who created my inward parts. 
You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me, and when I was formless, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. You know, it's, it's, I think it's easy for us to think, yeah, every race should be treated equal. Stop this racism stuff. That's why we have all the CRT thing. I'm like, God loves all races. Quit, quit doing what, we can't do that anymore. We never should have considered someone less human than us. Another race, really? How about women and women's rights? We, we consider them less of people? That's not how we do things. And we get, you, you feel us getting kind of like, this, oh, you can't do that. What about the poor? We try, oh, the, the poor, they're just mooching off the system. I, I've earned what I, they should go to work for a living. And we push them aside like they're less of a person because of their economic status. Have you tried to help them get a job? I mean, what are the oppressed? The ones that are continually ostracized, maybe the, the handicapped or the ill. Like, ah, you're not quite up to standards, you're not quite up to par, I'll, I'll listen to you just to kind of appease you, but you're really not a person. We don't say that out loud, but we do that, and we're like, no, that's not how we should operate. With children, the same way. I mean, I, as a dad, I've had to struggle through this. I, I continually have that, that, like, you're just a kid, you know, you're just a boy, you're just a girl, yeah, you're not quite there, they don't quite get it, we get it though, right, because parents understand. And, and, and the temptation is to kind of like love them, but kind of set them aside as not quite as valuable as me. I've earned this. I've lived it. I'm here. Or old people. Old people. It's, it's interesting to you old people out here, and me too, right? We think like, I, I put in my time. I'm tired. Let's get these young bucks in here. Let's take, they can take over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to what? Retire. I'm going to go on a trip and go collect seashells on the shore. That's my retirement. What? When did you start be, stop being productive? When did you stop being valuable? When did you stop thinking that you were of any value to the kingdom of God or to the world? Paul says that older men should be teaching the younger men. If there's a younger man than you, you should be teaching that person. And the older you get, there's more and more of them, by the way. You have value. And see, we fight against this. And that's why today I didn't name this, this sermon the sanctity of life because that's political, right? That's become political. You know, in our Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, when it was ratified and signed, and I know there's, there's some debate here, and I debated with Bubba about this a little bit, but, but what was, there was something in there that was interesting, right? It says that we hold these truths to be what? Self-evident. That all men are endowed by their Creator with unalienable rights, right? That we're equal. And... and some of the, the things I've said and read, uh, when Adam was writing that and Jefferson was part of that, he sent it to Franklin to say, can, can you make some changes and come back to the Congress with it so we can ratify this? You know the original text? And, and I think the, the text is great the way it is, but I think there's, there's something about it that kind of shines a light on our, our current situation today. The original text was this, that we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. That all men are created equal. What, what did it end up being? These truths are what? Self-evident. 
to whose self? Because where we are today is self-evident that that doesn't work. That if you rely on what's self-evident to you and I rely on what's self-evident to me, we are going to be in a mess and that not all men are created equal. In fact, even after the framers wrote this amazing document, this amazing system of government, they themselves couldn't carry this out, could they? How do they treat women and slaves? We, we, we didn't see it lived out. Why? Because we have to hold these truths as more than self-evident. We have to hold these truths as sacred and undeniable. And so when we get to this last part, we do, we say, yeah, the, every race is, is important. And they are. Every, every color, every creed, every nation is, is important. God, God loves all of them. They're created in His image. Males and females are all equally important and valuable to God. The poor and the rich, the, the captives or the free, the blind or the well, the oppressed or the affluent, children or old people. We all say yes, but also the unborn are important to God. The un, unborn are human beings to God. Now listen, I, I don't need like the political machine telling me which lives are valuable, which lives are important, which lives matter, right? Brown lives matter, black people matter, red people matter, yellow people matter, white people matter, women matter, men matter, poor matter, blind matter, the oppressed matter, children matter, old people matter, and the unborn matter. Because God created them in his image, they all matter and have value. And we must treat them like that. But when we want to talk about the biblical view of human value, we must look at God's design, not our own viewpoint. And in verse 16, if you look at it back at 139, there's something really important. There's a really important thing that the psalmist understands. Because I could give you all kinds of science that tells you, tells you why babies are, are human beings and that when the sperm meets the egg, it's actually a viable, different genetic code in human being. I could tell you all kinds of facts. But what's most important to me is this, verse 16. The psalmist says, God, God, when you, when your eyes saw me, I was formless still. God, your eyes saw me when I was formless. What does that mean? That God looks at the formless and he sees you. He sees the formless as a person, a human being. And really the question we have to ask when we talk about design is, what is God's viewpoint? How does God see this? Because every one of us could have all kinds of different self-evident views, amen? The question is, are we going to yield ourselves to how God sees this? And he sees the formless as human beings. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. That's what God sees. And in fact, before race or children or males and females before any of those had value outside of the womb, he saw you when you were unformed. That's God's design. That's God's design. You know, one of the things about, I'll, I'll bring up about science, one quick notation about the seeing the unformed. In, in statistics, these are a little old as far as statistics go. They might be a little higher now. But the statistics show this, that that when someone who is desiring to abort a fetus, a baby, a person, right? When they want to have an abortion, they've already, like that's their mindset right now. It's not the people that have, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do that. But people that have, when they are given the opportunity to see 
an ultrasound, picture, view, beating heart of that child, over 70% of those mothers decided not to have an abortion. I think part of it's just like, with this technology, we can now see what is unformed the way God sees what is unformed. Amazing, right? That's the only science thing I'll give you. You can look lots of other stuff up. But also, also, but to me, what matters most is in the beginning God, and God sees the unformed as a human being. All right? Let's look at number two, uh, the deception. What is the deception? We, go, we kind of walk through this, right? We see God's design, then we're deceived, and we ends into, or goes into depravity, and then there's some form of deliverance. The deception. Uh, the deception is similar to last week. It's, it's that we exalt ourselves. And that's true about any kind of devaluing of human beings. We exalt ourselves, and, and I exalt my own feelings. What I feel matters most, right? My view, how I see things, matters most, not how God sees things. And when we think that our view matters most, we're really not seeing ourselves rightly either. Remember last week, the phrase we used is that when I elevate my own righteousness, my own right view of what is around me, when I elevate my own righteousness, we lessen or lower the righteousness of God. And that, that is not to be done. I'm going to give you two examples here. One was in Luke 18. Jesus told this parable uh, to some. He says the crowd was those who trusted in themselves and they were righteous. I just said this, right? We elevate our own thoughts, right? We trust in ourselves. We we are righteous, and when we do that, he says, and they look down on everyone else. This is exactly what we're talking about when we de- devalue human beings. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. One had it all together, knew all the right things to say and do. One was just hmm, filthy. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not, God, I'm not like those people. Greedy and unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. You see what happens here? We, the way we exalt ourselves is we devalue someone else. Right? Well, let's see the other person. The other, the tax collector, was standing far off. Like, I can't even get in God's presence. I'm not worthy. I'm ashamed. I've seen myself how God sees me. It's sinful and separated. He would not raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He had the proper view of himself, didn't he? But he also had the proper view of God, a God who said, I am here to have mercy on sinful people. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's the deception? I'm awesome. You're not. We don't usually say the you're not part, though, out loud. We just say I'm awesome, and we treat everyone else as though they're not. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be here for a couple times. In the first book of the Bible, <clears throat> this is the other example of this elevated righteousness. 
We'll start in verse 3 of chapter 4, read through 7. Cain and Abel were both born. In verse 3, in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Now let's stop there and figure out why. A blood offering is what was required for a sacrifice unto the Lord. And Cain thought, I'll bring this. It's good enough. You, you see what he was doing? Elevating his own righteousness. Like, of course, God has to accept my way. Look at how good I am. This is, this is my hard, hard labor here for, before you, God. Abel brought a sacrifice, a blood offering in faith. Cain brought a sacrifice based on works. And God looked at Abel and said, well done. And he looked at Cain and said, hmm, that ain't it. That ain't it. He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was, here, here's how the response is, right? Cain was what? Furious and looked despondent. God, don't you know how righteous I am? Don't you know how amazing my sacrifice was? I mean, I have gone to all this trouble and you aren't even willing to accept it? That sounds self-righteous, doesn't it? He's angry. He's mad. I've, I've done all this work for you. God's like, that's not what I asked you to do. You, you created your own system of being right. And because you're not, and your own system of being right has been threatened, now you're angry and despondent. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? God's like, well, this is not hard, Cain. I've laid it out there for you. You can do what is right and it will be accepted. Do it in faith, not in self-righteousness, not in self-exaltation. But, he says, if you do not do what is right, you decide to do, go your own way and elevate your own righteousness, sin, God says, is crouching at the door. Sin is ready to pounce. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. When we, we get all intense and excited and like, my righteousness, my righteousness, and we get angry and mad, God's like, whoa, chill out. Sin is crouching at the door, and it's going to rule over you, but you must rule over it. We have, a, we have a choice there, right? We can yield and humble ourselves, or we could continue to exalt ourselves and be more angry and let sin be ruling over us. Uh, <clears throat> we do not rule over sin very well, do we? When we're self-righteous, that, that sin creeps in and we do not rule over it very well especially especially when we've elevated ourselves and our own righteousness to a place that is really nonsense what is the deception the deception is this what you value and how you see it matters most that's the deception what you value and the way you see it is what matters most so what's the depravity number two number three the depravity I want, to, I want to look through a few verses in James. You can stay here in Genesis if you'd like. Uh, I'm going to go through a little bit of a, a flow here. James 1. He says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. So again, 
the deception was your self-righteous is best. You should be angry if it doesn't get met. And now what we do is we take that self, that self-righteousness and it's its own evil desire. And now we're drawn away and enticed by this desire. And after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. This is again, my way, my desires, the way I see things, what matters most to me, my truth. That's what gives way to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Death. God loves us and doesn't want us to go to death. He wants us to choose life. But in our own um, extreme exalting of our own righteousness and our own value, and then devaluing of others, we actually have devalued ourselves to the point of being separated from God even more unto death. That's not what God wants. James 2, he goes on, he's kind of building this case. My, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So he's like, this is how this plays out. We start to show favoritism. You're less of a person, I'm more of a person. If someone, someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, you see we've got two different people here, right? What do you do? How do you treat these people? If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, sit here in a good, spa- good place, and, and yet you say to the poor person, now stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? This is what we do. When we show favoritism, we make distinctions among ourselves. And, he says, how you become judges with evil thoughts. What? No, I'm just, I just want to make sure someone has a good seat. No, you don't. You want to see them a certain way because they add value to your righteousness. They matter because you're selfish. It's your evil thoughts, your selfish gain, and, and that's what makes the distinctions. It, it's selfishness, right? And, and it's about selfishness that says, uh, I, I, I want to have what I want. I want to have the say. My, my way is better. Finish that statement. What, what are we implying? My way is better than yours. And or, my way is better for me. You make me uncomfortable. Uh, I want what I want and you are in the way. That, that's the attitude we have. And I, and I want us to be able to chuckle about that, but that's the re, real, real attitude we have when we walk out the door, unless we can humble ourselves and lower ourselves. James goes on in chapter 4. He says, what, what's the source of these wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? There's a war being waged within us. The war against self-exaltation, but we are really good at self-exaltation, so we tend to win that war. He says, you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, he says. Like this is adultery. Pushing God away. Didn't we start there, right? We pushed God away. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. What does depravity look like? People that are at, at odds with God, fighting God. And, and, and this is in Christendom, people. You and I have friends who would say, I love Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't believe that these people have, have worth or value. Well, I don't believe that, that, that 
scientifically people are actually ba- or human beings that are unborn. Okay, what does God say about that? It's adulterous to go outside of that. What does God say? What does His Word say? It says you're going to be an enemy of God if you're a friend of the world. So what does James go on to say? We must yield our heart. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He wants us to cleanse ourselves from that. To humble ourselves. To submit ourselves to God. To see and value others the way God sees and values. Back to Genesis chapter 4. You know, we, uh, we have this saying, and maybe I've used it here recently, I don't know. I think I did in Bible study. You remember when, you know, it's like that, that situation, someone comes up to you and says, hey, have you seen so-and-so? Have you, hey, I'm really worried about what they're up to. Have you, seen, have you seen them? And we like to quote this, don't we? What do we say? Oh, am I my, what? Am I my brother's keeper? Right? You, you may have said that, but I know I have. You may continually say, I'm not, I'm not my brother's keeper. Uh, really? Are you sure you want to claim that? Let's go back to Cain and Abel, shall we? G- Genesis 4, 6. God, again, he says to Cain, why are you so furious? Why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. You must rule over it. So Cain, what does Cain do? He's like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to fight this. I'm going to humble myself and not exalt myself. What does he do in the next verse? In verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, you're my favorite brother. I'm so sorry. No, that's not what he said. Sorry. Uh, He says to Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Right after God said, sin's crouching and you must rule over it. Hey, Abel, go to the field. He kills him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian or keeper? To which the answer should be what, church? Yes, you are. You are to regard everyone with value. They matter, and and you see them the way God sees them. You are absolutely your brother's keeper. And if you are not your brother's keeper, you are going to exalt yourself and push your brother down. And whether it's figuratively or literally, you are going to shed blood. And then he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cries out. Innocent blood shed because of self-exaltation cries out. And listen, hating your brother is, is murder. Jesus said that, right? If you've hated your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. We're all guilty, right? Hating your brother is murder. Actually, killing your brother is actually murder. Aborting a human fetus, a person, a human being, is murder. There's plenty. Listen, here's the the deal with this. There's plenty of figurative and literal bloodshed crying out because we didn't and we don't see and value others the way God sees and values others. There's lots of it happening every day. We must repent. We must stop that kind of bloodshed. And we must go to him and value people the way he values people. 
We're partaking in the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes. It's such an important thing to remember, right? Blood has been shed that's on our bill. But Jesus shed His blood also for that. That we could know Him and have Him as a Savior who makes all things new. That leads us into number four, the deliverance. Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, listen, you, you also were dead in your sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. He says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. Remember we went back to the beginning. All of us have messed up. There's no one that's good. All have sinned. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were, by nature, children under wrath as others were also. But he says, but God... Thank you, Jesus, right? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, that's his design to see us that way, he made us then alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. You want to know what the hope is and the answer is? If, you, if you're struggling, you're like, and I've treated people this way or, or I, I always look at this group of people this way or, and I, I, have, I have lived for years with this guilt from an abortion that I've committed. I just can't forgive myself anymore. Stop. God's grace is enough. We are not saved by how good you are. You are condemned because of how good you aren't. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love He had for us, makes us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our sins. You are saved by grace. And for for us who who know that deeply and, and trust in that deeply, we have to be very careful not to look down upon others. Why? Because you and I were at one time without Christ. We were also dead in our sin, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the promise without hope, without God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the good news. We have all shed innocent blood, but so has Christ. He has shed his own for you. Paul says in Titus, for the grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation to all people. All. Because that's the way God looks at people and values people, to all people, to all who would put their faith in him. Jesus was asked the question, are you really the Messiah? John the Baptist kind of sent messengers. And he says, see for yourself, basically. He said, Here, here's what he said. Listen, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is anyone. Blessed is the one. How are we blessed in this? Who is not offended by me. Listen, Jesus came and paid it all for you. We're going we're to have our kids come in and we're going to have communion here in a minute. We're going to get our hearts ready and right for this. Jesus paid it all for you. But what it takes for you and for me is to, who have shed innocent blood to come to him and say, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty and I'm, I'm relinquishing my way. I'm relinquishing the way I see it. I'm giving up control. I'm, my own self-righteousness needs to go down 
and be considered nothing because God, I want to look at what you look at and I want to see what you see and I want things that matter to you to matter to me and I am not going to be offended by who or what you value. I'm going to come in partnership with that. So what does it take for us? Well, blessed if you're not offended, right? We have shed innocent blood, but he has shed his blood for us. And those who would humble themselves and receive his grace, they don't and won't be offended by Jesus and what he values. Amen? We're going to grab our kids and have them come back in to the sanctuary here in a minute. I'm going to and if, I'm going to give some instruction now about Lord's Supper. And I want us to be thinking about this. Our worship team can come back up. They're going to lead us in some songs and reflection. But it really is a time, I, I want us to think about this as we approach the Lord's table now. As we come to the Lord's Supper, this has to be you and I having come to the table saying, I can't bring what I view. I can't bring what I value. I can't, I can't come saying, God, this, this is what matters to me, so you need to accept it. What I want you to understand is Jesus isn't a reference point. He's our everything. And, and because of what he has done and what he has given to us, we should not be offended by him. We should be offended by our sin. We should be offended because we have all shed innocent blood. But God, rich in mercy, shed his innocent blood so that you and I could be forgiven and made whole. So when we come down or when we receive the Lord's Supper, we're going to pass it out today. When we receive the Lord's Supper today, I want you to understand, we, we receive it in faith, knowing that, that I didn't accomplish anything on my own, but that Jesus spilled his blood to show that, he, that I'm valuable to him and that others are valuable to him. And if I, would, if I would partake, I partake because I am not offended by Jesus. In fact, I'm, I'm overflowing with complete gratitude to Jesus for what he has done. And I yield my heart to what he values and who he values and the way he sees value in him. Amen? As we do that, as our kids come in, we've, we started passing this out because uh, it's an opportunity for us to have those teachable moments right there where you're sitting. Listen, if, you, if you're not a believer, if you're still offended by Jesus in some way, like, eh, I don't know about this, that's fine. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. We're glad you get to be exposed to God's word. We want you to ask questions. We want you to grow. We want you to come to know Jesus. But if you're still like, offended by Jesus, we ask that you not partake. Like it's, This isn't for you then. This, this isn't for people who have been offended by Jesus. This is people who aren't offended by Jesus because of what he's done for them. Uh, we also have our children coming in. And for, for some of you, you know, you know, you should know where your children are and what they're, what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they know about the gospel and what they know about Christ, what they know about his sacrifice. And, and we partake at times together as even a family. But have that be a teachable time right there on the pew in that moment where you can have that conversation and, and make sure you share. This is what this is about. This is what this means. This is why this is important. 